Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story This Week, where we'll look at how movies depicted historical events that happened between January 23rd and January 29th. Let's get into it. January 24th, 1984, California. The voice demo is flaky. It worked last night. It worked three hours ago, but it's not working now, so just skip over the voice demo. F*** you. Shh. We need it to say hello. It's not going to say hello. Fix it. Fix it? In 40 minutes? I can't do that. Who's the person who can Michael Stolberg's version of Andy Hertzfeld replies, I'm the person who can, and I can't. Can't we cut it? We can't cut it. Two days ago, we ran a Super Bowl ad that could have won an Oscar for short film. More people can tell you about the ad than can tell you who won the game. House opens at five. Someone shot from the back. Michael Fassbender's version of Steve Jobs replies, don't open the house. We're taking a quick break. Kate Winslet's version of Joanna Hoffman continues to pressure Jobs as the stresses of the event continues. You need special tools to open the Mac? You knew it was a closed system. Not literally. Jesus. Hoffman and Jobs continue to argue backstage. Jobs insists if they cancel the hello, then John Scully will agree to cancel the launch. Now he's upset about the cover of Time magazine. He gave them full access, but he's not happy with the result. Hoffman says it doesn't matter, but she's concerned with the idea that they'll sell a million Macintoshes in the first 90 days. Is that realistic? Job tells her that everyone is waiting for the Mac. Hoffman isn't so sure. Maybe, she says, but what happens when they find out that for $24.95, there's nothing you can do with it? She continues saying they were competitive at $1,500, but once you replace the Motorola 6809 with the 68000 Jobs stops her short. Coach lands in the runway at the exact time as first class. Hoffman doesn't know what he means by that, but she points out that the PC can do a lot more at the $2,500 price point. Jobs goes on to say that people won't know what they're looking at or why they like it, but they'll know they want it. This depiction of the event comes from the 2015 movie simply called Steve Jobs. And while a lot of the dialogue is dramatic license for the film, it is true that the first Macintosh computer was unveiled to a room full of shareholders on Tuesday, January 24th, 1984, at the Flint Center of De Anza College in Cupertino, California. And just like the movie suggests, two days before people got their first look at the Macintosh computer in person, Apple launched an ad during Super Bowl 18. That ad was written by Steve Hayden, Lee Clow, and Brent Thomas, but it's most popularly known as being directed by Ridley Scott and based on the classic George Orwell novel from 1949 called 1984. In fact, the estate of George Orwell sent a cease and desist to Apple after the ad was released in April of 1984. The movie was also correct with some of the other things that it mentioned. Uh, For example, when Kate Winslet's character mentions replacing the Motorola 1609 with the 68000. 
those are both actual Motorola microprocessing chips. The 6809 was one of the most powerful chips of its time, but it was still an 8-bit microprocessor with only some 16-bit features. This 68000 chip, however, was a 16-bit and 32-bit chip, so it was more powerful. It was also more expensive, and that raised the price of the original Macintosh. That price came in at about $2,500, just like we see in the movie, which was incredibly expensive for a computer, especially since the average person didn't have their own computer. So it was simultaneously trying to convince people that they had a need for a computer while also costing a lot of money. For a bit of perspective, $2,500 in 1984 is about the same as $7,000 today. Knowing that, it's probably not too much of a surprise that the original Macintosh was not very popular at launch. But looking at this week's event in history, it is a landmark device. Today, Apple fans around the world celebrate January 24th as Macintosh Computer Day. If you want to watch the event, check out the start of the 2015 Steve Jobs movie. The event itself actually starts after the opening credits at about a minute and 50 seconds. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. January 28th, 1944, Ireland. A German destroyer is rendezvousing with a German submarine. Except this German sub isn't manned by German sailors anymore. Earlier in the movie, we saw Americans from the S-33 take over the German U-boat known as U-571. In an attempt to hide the fact that Americans control the sub, Matthew McConaughey's version of Lieutenant Tyler tells two of his men to get on the deck gun and put a hole in the radio tower of the destroyer so they can't tell anyone where they are or that the Americans have the Enigma machine and codebooks on board. Just as a group of Germans are making their way to what they think are their comrades-in-arms, the Americans fire on the destroyer. They manage to hit the radio tower, but obviously now they've tipped their hands. 
Diving under the water, the destroyer starts dropping depth charges. Tyler tries to trick the Germans by releasing debris from the torpedo tubes, but it doesn't work. The depth charges keep coming. They cause some significant damage to U-571, including causing some damage to the main ballast tanks. That makes the submarine start to surface, something they don't really want to do since they don't have a chance against the destroyer on the surface of the water. Tom Gurry's character, Trigger, dives under the water in a flooded compartment on the sub to try to close the air valve that's causing the problem. He closes one, but then notices another broken valve that's leaking. Sacrificing his own life, Trigger manages to fix the valve just in time for U-571 to fire their final torpedo at the destroyer. It's a hit. The destroyer erupts into a ball of flames. The men on U-571 survive, but at the cost of Trigger's life. Also, the submarine is severely damaged and beyond repair, so they can't continue. They get the Enigma machine and abandoned ship. In the final moments of the movie, we can see U-571 slipping beneath the surface. Then, later, the Americans are rescued by a PBY waterplane. That is all made up. None of that actually happened. <laughs> it's probably worth pointing out that even though I said the time and place at the beginning of this event, the movie also does not portray this event happening at that time or place. At the beginning of the 2000 movie, simply called U571, it tells us that it's spring of 1942. So the movie got the date wrong too. But because this series is focused on the dates of historical events, we'll go with the actual date instead of the fictional one. There really was a German submarine named U-571, but the true story is not nearly as dramatic as the movie. The real U-571 was never captured by the Allies. It was west of Ireland on January 28, 1944, when an Australian boat patrol bomber spotted it and dropped depth charges. U-571 sank, although the captain of the bomber said he saw the crew escape the sub. They didn't survive, though, likely dying from hypothermia in the cold waters. The American submarine in the movie was real, too. But she didn't sink like we see in the movie. S-33 survived the war and ended up being sold for scrap in 1946. Oh, and the German destroyer that we see being, well, destroyed in the movie also never sank. In fact, it never even sailed. We can see the name of the ship painted on the side when Lieutenant Tyler is looking through the binoculars. It's Z-49. And we know from history that Z-49 was ordered in June of 1943, but she was never completed. Actually, the whole concept of the movie U-571 is also historically inaccurate. Hirsch explains their mission to the crew of the S-33. He says the German Enigma code machine on U-571 allows the German Navy to communicate with the submarines in secret. Moreover, the inability to decipher their messages is costing the Allies the war. While the movie doesn't explicitly say it here, when I say the concept of the movie is inaccurate, what I mean is the way the movie makes it seem like capturing an Enigma code machine on a U-boat will break the German Navy's encryption and allow the Allies to win the war, that is an oversimplification. For example, there's not just one Enigma code to crack. So it's not like capturing a single machine would allow the Allies to crack it. Not only that, but the Allies... Actually, already had. They already had an Enigma machine even before World War II started. If you want to learn more about this, I would highly recommend checking out episode number 147 of Based on a True Story about the movie The Imitation Game. We take a deep dive in that episode into Enigma and the Codebreakers at Bletchley Park. 
But if you want to watch this fictional depiction of a fictional event this week, check out the 2000 movie U571. The encounter with the German destroyer starts at about an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. As our next movie fades up from black, we can hear some garbled radio communications. The camera pans across a launch site as text on the screen tells us the time and place. NASA Kennedy Space Center, 28th of January, 1986. The garbled transmissions sound like tuning an old radio, but as we can see, the whole launch pad now, the audio stops on a few different announcers, enough for us to get a sense of what we're looking at. One announcer says the countdown continues for the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger as its crew of seven, including the New Hampshire school teacher, Krista McAuliffe. Another announcer then says the 51L mission is ready to go. Then we're transported to a classroom as an esteemed guest lecturer is announced. A list of awards is given, including his winning the Nobel Prize in physics, Dr. Richard Feynman. He's played by William Hurt in the movie. For the next few scenes, the movie cuts back and forth between Dr. Feynman giving his talk and the launch of the Challenger at Kennedy Space Center. It's daytime at the launch pad now. Sparks start to fly under the engine as the countdown reaches its end. Ten. Nine. Eight. The sparks turn into flames. Seven. Six. An announcer declares, we have main engine start. Four. Three. Two. One. And right on cue, the massive rocket launches off the pad in a blast of flames and smoke. The rocket clears the tower and the camera's view, leaving only a trail of flames in its wake. A couple women are watching the launch on TV as they eat what I'm assuming are bowls of cereal. They cheer as they watch the rocket making its way into the sky on the screen. Cut back to Dr. Feynman's talk for a moment as he's explaining that science teaches us what the rules of evidence are. Back with the space shuttle launch, we see the massive streams of flames from the back of the rocket. All of a sudden, the entire rocket is nothing more than a ball of flame. It's just gone. Left behind are trails of smoke and little pieces of falling debris. This depiction is very well done in the 2013 movie simply called The Challenger because, well, most of what we see in the opening sequence of the film isn't even a depiction. Most of what we see of The Challenger itself is archival footage of the real event. But, as is usually the case, there's more to the story. Challenger was the name of the space shuttle itself and made its first flight in space nearly three years earlier, in April of 1983, during what was designated STS-6, or Space Transportation System 6. Although it was the first time the Challenger would enter space, it was the sixth overall NASA space shuttle mission. Fast forward to January 28, 1986, and Challenger had gone on 10 other flights and logged 1,496 hours and over 25 million miles around the Earth. That's over 41 million kilometers, or about 995 orbits around Earth. Officially designated STS-51L, the mission we're focusing on today was originally planned for January 22nd, 1986. Then it was postponed to January 23rd, then the 24th. The reason for those delays was because of another mission, STS-61C. That was Space Shuttle Columbia. 
It had launched on January 12th, and it didn't end up returning to Kennedy Space Center until January 23rd. So basically, the delays in Columbia's return also delayed Challenger's launch. After Columbia returned, bad weather postponed Challenger's launch even further. Then there were some technical issues that delayed the launch another 24 hours after the 27th. Looking back on the launch through the lens of history, we've been able to analyze and determine errors along the way. On January 28th, there was a two-hour delay when there was a hardware failure for a module that was monitoring fire detection. For example, while no one noticed it during liftoff, but analyzing photos and video footage of the launch revealed what NASA calls a strong puff of gray smoke at 0.678 seconds after liftoff. The smoke came from an area facing the external tank near the aft field joint on the right solid rocket booster. It indicated there was not a complete seal within the joint. As the launch continued, the analysis indicated eight more of these puffs as the rocket lifted into the air. A flame was detected around the area at 58.788 seconds, and at first, it was very small. It grew quickly, though, and at about 60 seconds, the analysis confirmed a visible difference in the chamber pressures between the left and right boosters. In other words, there was a growing leak on the right side. From there, things quickly got worse. The first visual indication that the flame had grown large enough to be swirling was at 64.660 seconds. This told NASA's personnel who analyzed the footage that the flame had mixed with leaking hydrogen from the external tank. Less than 10 seconds later, at 72.2 seconds, a lower strut was pulled away from the weakened hydrogen tank. That allowed the right solid booster to rotate. At 73.124 seconds, the structure of the hydrogen tank started to fail, releasing liquid hydrogen that then caused a huge forward thrust to the rotating right solid rocket booster. Its movement impacted other parts of the rocket, causing the intertank and part of the liquid hydrogen tank to fail. Then, at 73 seconds, the massive explosion. Challenger was traveling at Mach 1.92 at 46,000 feet, that's over 14,000 meters, when the entire structure burst into flame. The planned mission was supposed to last 144 hours and 34 minutes after launch. Instead, it lasted only 73 seconds. All seven crew members perished. F. Richard Scobie, commander. Michael J. Smith, pilot. Ronald McNair, mission specialist. Ellison Onizuka, mission specialist. Judith Resnick, mission specialist. Gregory Jarvis, payload specialist. Krista McAuliffe, payload specialist, teacher. The addition of Krista McAuliffe on the crew, which the movie does mention, was true, and it was partially because a school teacher was on board that made the media attention even higher for the mission. She had been chosen out of more than 11,000 applicants for the NASA Teacher in Space project that would make her the first teacher to fly in space. It's a big reason why so many people were watching it live. She had actually planned on teaching two lessons while she was in space. The movie is also correct to include Dr. Richard Feynman in the story, as he was part of the panel that investigated the Challenger disaster. The official cause was determined to be a failed O-ring in the right solid rocket booster. 
If you want to watch the event this week, look for the 2013 movie called The Challenger. The disaster itself is how the movie starts. This episode of Based on a True Story this week was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Before I let you go, while not historical events, there are some birthdays this week for people who have been mentioned in movies or TV shows. On January 24th, 1943, Sharon Tate was born in Dallas, Texas. An actress herself in numerous movies and wife of director Roman Polanski, Tate was very involved in the film industry. However, most people know her because of her tragic death when she and five others, including Sharon's unborn child, were murdered in her home by members of the Manson family. That event has been covered in many movies, including Netflix's Mindhunter series and a fictionalized version in the 2019 movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you want to learn more about the true story, though, I would recommend watching the 2020 documentary on Apex called Helter Skelter, an American Myth. On January 26, 1880, Douglas MacArthur was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was the American general who commanded the Southwest Pacific Theater of World War II, although he's perhaps best remembered for returning to the Philippines in 1944 after being forced to flee in 1942. MacArthur was also in charge of the surrender ceremony in Tokyo Bay in 1945. He's been portrayed in a number of movies, but he's often a side character. So if you're looking for a recommendation to watch this week about him, I would recommend the 1977 biopic simply called MacArthur, where he's played by Gregory Peck. On January 28, 1912, Jackson Pollock was born in Cody, Wyoming. He was an abstract expressionist painter who is perhaps best known for his style of using his whole body to paint. His life was portrayed in the 2000 movie simply called Pollock, where Jackson is played by Ed Harris. Oh, and as a fun little side note, that movie is based on the Pulitzer Prize winning book by Stephen Nafee and Gregory White Smith. And I had the chance to chat with Stephen about another of his Pulitzer Prize winning books about the life of Vincent Van Gogh. That is episode number 193 about the movie At Eternity's Gate. If you're finding some value in Based on a True Story, you can support the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. There you can also learn how to get ad-free versions and help keep the show going. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.